0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. Let's just say, October was an amazing month filled with so many stories, but hey, let's not have that stop in November. Let's keep it going with another amazing collection of scary stories as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I found an old cassette tape in an abandoned mental facility. I regret listening to it. Written by Carl B. 1961 Me and my friends, Jordan, Ashley, and Sam are urban explorers in our free time. You're probably familiar with the type of stuff that we do, but in case that you're not, we go around exploring abandoned locations. Record it on our phones and upload the videos on YouTube. Mold abandoned warehouses, amusement parks, industrial complexes, you name it, and we've done it. It's a fun hobby, but it can be scary, not to mention a little dangerous. Some of the places that we've explored are condemned as structures, so dilapidated that they look like a strong wind would knock them down. You have to be careful navigating those places and constantly stop to inspect your surroundings. You never know when a rotted stairway might give way under your feet or a rusted catwalk might collapse and send you plunging 50 feet to a hard concrete floor. Not to mention there's always the possibility of running into some strung out drug addict or crazy homeless person squatting there. Plus what we do isn't exactly legal, we've had some close calls. Once a security guard chased us out of a deserted factory. And another time, someone actually had called the cops on us. Luckily, the guy wasn't too much of a hardo, and he let us go with a warning. You probably think that we're stupid or crazy to do what we do. And maybe you're right. But that's just the way that we are. We enjoy the thrill of it. Two weeks ago, Sam got a tip on a new place that seemed like prime material for our next video. Especially with Halloween approaching an old crumbly mental hospital in the next county. It had been built in the late 1800s and had been abandoned for 30 years or so. The early 90s, I believe, and had a pretty sordid past. Supposedly, it was shut down after some kind of scandal involving an investigative reporter who went undercover as a patient and uncovered all kinds of abuse and neglect on part of the staff. There were even rumors that the doctors were conducting all kinds of messed up secret experiments on the patients, None of that is substantiated, of course, it's just the type of typical BS urban legends that spring up around a place like that. The official story is the hospital was closed due to the government cutting their funding for budget reasons. According to Sam, the place was scheduled to be demolished soon in order to put up an apartment complex, so this was probably our only chance to check it out. So last weekend, the four of us hopped into Jordan's old Mazda and made the two-hour drive out there. The institution was located in a relatively rural area on the outskirts of the city. As soon as it came into view, we knew that we wouldn't be disappointed. A forbidding grey stone building, four stories tall with narrow barred windows, stood in the middle of a sprawling, heavily overgrown lawn beyond a high, rusted chain link fence, with razor wire coiled over the top. The main gate was adorned with a faded no trespassing sign marked with a couple of 22 bullet holes and secured with a thick chain and heavy padlock but after a few minutes of poking around ashley found a place in the fence where some introvert explorer before us had snipped a decent sized hole through the chain link probably with a bolt cutter we slipped through it easily and then made our way up the long overgrown driveway towards the main building The closer we got, the more creeped out that I started to feel. The immense stone building seemed to loom over us, its imposing facade almost resembling a scowling face with many narrow, barred eyes that stared coldly down at the four intruders approaching it. The main entrance doors had been nailed shut at one point by someone, presumably the same person who had cut a hole in the fence. They had pried off the sheet of plywood that had once covered them, and they stood wide open like the gaping mouth of a beast getting ready to swallow its prey whole. We paused for a couple minutes, still about 20 yards away, so that Sam could film Jordan standing in front of the institution as he did a brief intro. And then we closed the remaining distance, all of us with our phone cameras on and recording, and we entered at the decrepit building. We were in the main lobby and reception area, The floor was littered with all kinds of debris and trash, dead leaves that had blown in through the open doors, empty beer cans fast food wrappers, cigarette butts, you name it, presumably stuff that had been left over by kids using the building as a hangout spot, and homeless people looking for a place to get drunk and crash for the night. The walls were marked with graffiti, a bedpan of one of those old school steel ones stood on the reception desk, None of us dared approach it for a closer inspection. We looked around for a while and eventually found the main stairway, standing next to the long dead elevators, no electricity. We went upstairs to explore the second story. It was the hospital's administrative wing, offices mostly. Honestly, there wasn't much interesting in most of them. The place had been pretty thoroughly cleared out when the institution was shut down and all that remained were some empty filing cabinets and discarded pieces of ancient office equipment. In the hospital director's office, a cardboard shoebox stood open on the otherwise bare desk. I peered inside and saw a contained number of old audio cassette tapes, still in their cases. I flipped through them out of curiosity. There were a couple dozen of them. They had various names and dates carefully printed on the labels. I didn't know what they were, but Sam suggested that they maybe there were recordings of therapy sessions with former patients. I grabbed one at random and threw it in my pocket to take back with me, just as a souvenir. And then we continued our investigation, filming anything we found that looked even remotely interesting. Truthfully, the whole trip was kind of a letdown. There wasn't much to see or film. The top two floors were patient rooms, but... They were almost all vacant except for a couple of rusted bed frames, more litter and an occasional graffiti artist tag. The place didn't even have a sinister or creepy ambience once you were inside. There were no more operating tables spattered with dried blood or rusted as surgical implements, not even a spooky abandoned wheelchair standing in one of the corridors. The institution had been a minimum security when it had been in operation, So it wasn't like there had been any especially violent or dangerous patients kept locked up there. In other words, there was no dungeon ward in the basement where the likes of Hannibal Lecter had been imprisoned safely away from the general population. It could have been an abandoned office building for all the atmosphere that it generated. After about an hour, we decided to call it quits. Jordan filmed the outro apologizing to the audience for the video being such a disappointment. ...and then we left and got back into our car... ...and drove home without incident. I went on with my normal routine and had pretty much forgotten... ...all about our exploration of the mental hospital... ...until Wednesday morning when I was getting ready to leave for work. I couldn't find my car keys which I typically carried in my pants... ...and I was desperately hunting my apartment for them in a rush and not to be late. I searched for them in my jacket pocket... Not finding them, but instead, the cassette tape that I had swiped from the institution. I had completely forgotten all about it. I had other priorities at the moment, so I tossed it on my desk for the time being, and I went on with my search. I eventually did locate my keys. They had slipped out of my pants and found their way under the cushions of my couch, and I got to work only a couple of minutes late. That evening when I got home, I spotted the cassette on my desk, and after dinner decided to give it a closer inspection. It was one of those ninety minute jobs that fit into a full sized portable tape recorder. Carefully printed on the label by hand in faded black ink were the words Bennett Michael and a date eight seventeen ninety one. There were a few seconds of hissing silence and then the audio resumed. At first, the only sound was a man's heavy, slightly uneven breathing, and then the professional clinical voice from before, the doctor spoke. How are you feeling today, Michael? The ragged breathing continued and there was no answer. Michael, the second voice spoke. It sounded like it belonged to a younger man. The voice was agitated and tight with a suppressed emotion. The voice of a man in turmoil, struggling to maintain his composure. Why do you care how I feel? What does it matter anyway? There's nothing you can do. All you do is ask me the same questions over and over again, every single time. The emotion behind those words, could have been rage or something else. It's a very important part of your therapy, Michael. We have to get to the root of whatever is the source for your mental distress in order to give you the necessary treatment that you require so that you can function normally again and return to society. BS, The younger man interrupted with a shout. You're just playing with my head like all the other shrinks did. To you, I'm just another freak that you can play your little mind games on. Some nut that you can exploit to get published in all the big shot medical journals. The doctor spoke softly. I'm trying to help you, Michael. A contemptuous snort. There's nothing that you can do to help me, Doc. There's nothing anyone can do. There was anger in his voice, but something else too. Fear. Please, Michael, you have to work with me if you want to get out of here. You refuse to tell the other doctors what you're so afraid of. What causes you to wake up in the night screaming? Why don't you tell me, Michael? Tell me what you've been so scared of for all these years. Several moments of silence and then the man spoke. All the rage was gone from his voice, but the fear it remained. He spoke with a defeated resignation. Fine, I'll tell you, just so that I can tell someone and finally get it out. You'll think that I'm crazy but everybody already does. That's why I'm in this loony bin, why the heck not? He chuckled humorously. He took a few seconds to gather himself before he began. Do you know what it's like to live your whole life knowing the worst thing you could ever know, Doctor? The worst thing that anyone could ever know? Do you know what it's like to live every single moment in pure terror? Terror of what, Michael? What if you could see things that other people couldn't? Things that people weren't meant to see? To know things humans weren't meant to know? I can see these things, Doctor. It started when I was only eight or nine. That's when I first began seeing them. Them? The doctor asked. The Forgotten Ones. That's what I call them. They call themselves the Ancient Ones or the Originals. What are they, Michael? These Forgotten Ones. People talk about hauntings about seeing ghosts. You hear about it all the time. Some people even claim to be able to communicate with them. To channel them for a living. Spiritualists, psychics, whatever you want to call them. Most of them are full of BS. Frauds. But maybe a few are the real thing. But psychics, they deal with dead people. Human ghosts. The man paused to let out a shaky sigh. If it was the ghosts of people, I might be able to cope with that. Maybe I could have gotten used to it and come to accept it with time. But the Forgotten Ones are not human, and they never were. Go on, Michael, I'm listening. The doctor urged him. They're old, very, very old. They died long before mankind ever existed on the Earth. But before they died, they had lived here for a long, long time. The planet is billions of years old, Doc. And human beings have only been around for a couple of million. Do you honestly think that ours was the first civilization to ever exist? That no one was here before us? They were the original rulers of Earth. They've been dead for hundreds of millions of years, long before even the dinosaurs came along. But their spirits are still here. They always have been, invisible to us, watching us. There is no afterlife you see, no heaven. No death. When you die, your spirit is just stuck here forever. The Forgotten Ones saw the human race evolve. They saw our civilization rise and they hate us. They have always hated us. They see us as intruders, invaders, thieves who took the world that was once theirs for ourselves. I see. The doctor interjected patronizingly. Yeah, you sure do. The man muttered cynically. What do these forgotten ones look like, Michael? You don't want to know. The man replied in a strained, trembling voice. They're monstrous, beyond description, and so full of rage and envy and vengeance. I know all this because they tell me. They communicate to you, the doctor asked. Oh yes, all the time. They know that I can see them. I can't understand what they're saying when I'm awake. They speak in their own language, but when I'm asleep, they come to me in my dreams and then I can understand. The Forgotten Ones hate us, but they can't harm us. They can't touch us because they are ghosts and we are alive. We're safe from them as long as we're alive. But when we die, when our spirits separate from our mortal bodies and we cross over into their realm, then it's payback time. There was a long pause. The doctor said nothing to break the silence, and the man resumed. Whoever came up with the notion of where we go after passing, of demons, of tortured souls, and eternal suffering, maybe they caught a glimpse of what the Forgotten Ones do to the spirits of the dead. That was where the recording had ended. The audio cut off and the hissing silence resumed. I listened for a couple more minutes, but there was nothing else. Then I turned off the recorder, ejected the cassette tape, and just sat staring at it for a long time, disturbed by what I had just listened to. Out of curiosity, I entered Michael S. Bennett and the name of the mental hospital into Google, and I did a search. I found an obituary in the local newspaper for a Michael Samuel Bennett. He had died on November 11th, 1994, at the age of 31, but the obit didn't say how. I did a bit more digging and found a newspaper article about his death. He had died alone in his apartment of liver failure after a long struggle with alcohol addiction. There is a picture of a man with a gaunt face and dark, haunted eyes. I couldn't find anything to suggest that he had had a history of mental health issues or had ever been a patient of the institution. Maybe his family had wanted to keep that out of the paper. Or maybe the hospital records had been kept confidential. Maybe it wasn't even the same guy. The things that guy said in the tape still creep me out. He sounded so convinced, so sincere about the things he claimed to be able to see I tell myself that I'm making a big deal out of nothing, that what I had heard had been nothing but the ranting paranoid delusions of an extremely disturbed mental patient. And that's all it is, right? That's all it can be, right? After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that, that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at only 15 bucks a month, I thought, what is the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it really all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. One game-changer that I personally experienced is that my wireless service has been noticeably better since switching to Mint Mobile for my old service. I can't remember a time that I've had a call drop since purchasing a Mint Mobile phone plan. This is super reassuring when taking important work calls or talking with long-distance family members and friends. Another huge perk about Mint Mobile is how much you save. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for only 15 bucks a month which is much cheaper than what I had been previously paying. Would you need to purchase multiple phone lines? Well, the Mint Mobile offers the best rates whether you're buying for just one or for the whole family. Plus, a Mint Mobile family plans start at two lines, and all plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And there's no need to worry about starting fresh on a new phone. Use your phone with any Mint Mobile phone plan and keep your same number, along with all of your existing contacts. And to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mrcreeps. That's mintmobile.com slash mrcreeps. Call your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mrcreeps. I was sent to the wrong type of jail, things aren't right here. Written by Sad dead. I was moved from county jail in October of 2016, following my conviction for armed robbery. I'm not here to garner sympathy, but I want to be clear on a couple of things. This was an unfair sentence. Not in the usual, innocent man put in jail type of schlock, but in the way that they were clearly pushing me towards being in a particular jail. I had my blood tested and my hair was sent to a lab. They took pictures of my fingernails. I had never seen anything like it, but I was basically catatonic. I was in a bad place. I wanted it all to just be over. At the time, I didn't think much about the processing. I didn't think about the records that were passed between the guards and doctors. I didn't care much about the blue rubber stamps that were put at the base of every signed legal document. I didn't know what was normal and what wasn't. I just wanted to get into the haze and no brain the next six or so years away. I was put in a cell with Lian Soon, a Chinese-American man. To this day, I don't have the slightest idea what he was in for. The guy looked like your average college kid, but there was something off about him. He just had this look of complete disassociation, like he was miles away at all times. He never really looked at you, it was as if he looked straight through you. Then again, a lot of inmates get that. I barely managed to talk to him in the first few days. We agreed that I took the top bunk, but that was pretty much all we had managed to talk about. We had a straightforward schedule too, breakfast and work up until 11, lunch, more work, some yard time and then dinner. After that, we either got to our specialized programming time, religious services, NA, anger management, etc., or an extra hour in the yard, and then back in the cell and lights out by 11. In the first few days, I had to go through a lot of orientation. There were the kind of who's who introductions you might expect. But also just someone pointing to which shelf they locked the detergent. Basic stuff. I got a job cleaning the beddings. They were so cheap that a firm enough poke would go straight through them like a piece of paper. Washing them was basically putting them in a shredder. We had to go on such a low setting that they rarely ever got clean. I swear that I saw a cockroach in one of the pillowcases once. And the dang thing was still alive after the wash and dry. The pillows were also crap. They ripped easily and feathers would get stuck to everything. Probably wasn't in a room in this whole facility without feathers littering the floor. Heck, they were even in the yard. Most of them were, in fact. We would have rotating schedules, so I barely got to work with these same people two days in a row. I started to recognize a few faces, but people mostly kept to themselves. There was no locker room talk, no braggarts, no bravado, just people hunkering down and shutting up. But even early on, I noticed that something was off. I think it all came down to the yard. People stayed away from the prison yard. No one used the exercise equipment. People just stuck to the walls or silently walked by the fences. There were no loud conversations and no sports and nothing. And as soon as that free hour was up, people were pushing to get back in. From day one, I got the impression that the yard was a bad place to be, but no one was telling me why. What kind of prison has a dust on the free weights? By the end of the first week, I had started to get into the routine. I was out cold by ten most nights. Heck, I had the bedding with the least holes in them, and I might as well use that luxury. But there was that one night when I just couldn't sleep. I would lay down and all of a sudden I'd be wide awake. There was this whistling wind that came down the hall and it just kept echoing in the back of my head. At first it was a wind and then a whistle and with no other sound around it kept growing in my head until it sounded like a firetruck siren. I would push my hands against my ears, cover my head in a pillow, but it didn't do a thing. Finally, I just started to mutter to myself, just to fill the air with some other noise. Please stop, I would whisper. Please stop. And the funny thing, it did. It stopped. The next day, I was exhausted. I kept nodding off, breakfast, lunch, dinner, pretty much any time that I could sit down. The guards would push me awake, and the other inmates just sort of stared at me, Some of them actively avoided me, like there was something wrong with me. When it was time for the yard, the guards took me aside and asked me to help clean the common area. No yard time for me got to sweep up some feathers. That night, I went to bed as soon as I could. But the moment my head hit that pillow, I was wide awake again. And down the hall, there was that howling wind. There was no way for me to sleep. The sound just kept growing and all my tiredness was just gone. The whispering didn't work anymore. I had to speak out loud. Around midnight I was still awake and I was just lying there talking to myself. Putting words to the random thoughts in the back of my head to keep my mind occupied. Anything to drown out that awful droning noise outside. I couldn't let it grow further. It was like trying to stop a ship from sinking one bucket of water at a time. I didn't have the slightest idea how Lian tolerated it, but he didn't say a word. Things just got worse. I couldn't sleep that entire night. So, when it was time to get up, I could barely stand. I fell asleep, brushing my teeth, dropping my toothbrush in the sink. I was so used to talking to myself by then that I would blurt out whatever came to mind. I was sleep-deprived, exhausted and just confused and people took notice. There was this one guy, Marlon, who was about as new as I was. Short, athletic guy who was itching for a fight. I had accidentally bumped into him in the lunch queue, and he went off on me, pushed me out of line, and bashed me over the face with a tray and just started wailing at me. The guards were taking their sweet time, so I just had to take it. But I couldn't. There was just something in me that wanted to hurt this guy. I grabbed his shirt and I looked him in the eyes. You want to get whipped, Greenie, I said. You want us to whip you. I don't know where the words came from, it was just the first thing that came to mind. And the sleep deprivation just forced it out of my mouth like a hiccup. What, what did you say? He stammered. I asked if the little Greenie wanted a whipping. He backed off. His jaw went slack as he just stared at me, unblinking. Just as I had found words out of nowhere, he had lost them. His eyes teared up as he backed himself up against the wall. The prison guards came up to restrain us and I could see all the fight had run out of them. The see at the orchard, greeny. I added. a Whip-whip. Marlon broke down. He screamed, tears running out of his eyes. He dropped to the floor and the guards had to carry him out. I thought that I would feel good after that, but the way everybody was staring at me made me feel like a museum exhibit. I had this sickeningly wide smile painted on my face, but it wasn't mine. None of this was me. I was losing control and it scared the crap out of me. I was a puppet. That night, I didn't even bother trying to sleep. I knew that as soon as I would lay down to try, I would just be wide awake again. Instead, I tried sleeping on my feet or sitting on the floor. This time, Lian couldn't ignore me. He sat up on his bed looking at me instead of looking through me. You want something? He asked. You itching? Nah, I said shaking my head. Just broken. Something's not right. Euphobic. Trouble with the walls. Maybe. I don't know. I can't sleep. It Looks like you sleep all the time, just not in here. Yeah, I sighed. Yeah, that's about right. They stamp you when you got here. You got any stamps? Yeah, uh, some blue ones. Everyone gets blue ones. What shape? Uh, I don't know, I shrugged. Leon took a long look at me, and in those few dragging seconds, I could hear the wind outside growing louder and I winced. I groaned to drown out the noise, but it was barely working. I might have to scream to keep it together for another night. They got two stamps, he said. A hand and a sunflower. You sure you don't know which one you got? Which one did you get? I asked. What do they mean? I got the hand, he said. Most of us did. No idea what it means, but the sunflowers are always a bit. He pointed at me as if to make a point. Maladaptive. Private prisons, I chuckled. B.S. all of it. Leon leaned back in his bed and closed his eyes. Yeah, he sighed. Sorting us into flowers and hands like it's daycare. Probably got a woodchuck and a dolphin stamp too. Leon was out like a light but as expected. I couldn't sleep. I paced back and forth and screamed into a pillow and tried massaging my ears. The scratchy noise sort of helped but I still found myself restless. Finally, I got out of bed and pressed my head against the door. Maybe if I let the wind howl, it'll take pity on me. Maybe it would get to a point where it would either kill me or stop. I didn't care which as long as something happened. But the strangest thing came to me. As I pressed my head against the door, the sound became clearer. The wind softened to a whistle and then a gentle hum. The more that I tried to lean into it to listen, the more beautiful it became. Right there, leaning against the door, I had the best sleep of my entire life. The next morning, Leon pulled me up as the guards did their rounds. I had slept all throughout the night and I felt amazing. But even then and there, at my best, I could hear a little piercing sound. That wind, that whisper, it was still in the back of my mind, even now during daytime. But all I had to do was lean into it, to listen and a wave of calm would wash over me. It worried me how easy it was. "'You got through it?' Leon asked. "'I'm getting there.' I wasn't paying much attention during breakfast. I was zoned out listening to what had turned into a melody. Something was speaking to me, but not through words, through emotions and sensation. So it wasn't a word that warned me about Marlin creeping up on me with a sharpened toothbrush.' It wasn't the guards or the other inmates. No, it was something in the back of my mind screaming at me to hurt him. And so I did. All I heard was laughter. There was this alien joy springing up in my chest, forcing me to my feet. I remember turning around in the world looking different. I felt four feet taller. I was looking into Marlin's eyes, but I didn't see him. I saw a teenage kid running through an orchard, hunted by his older brothers who wanted to beat him with a tire iron. Whip, whip. When I came to, I was still laughing. It wasn't my own laugh, and neither was the joy. The howling wind was finally quiet, but I felt like a stranger in my own body. I couldn't feel my limbs, and it took me seconds just to orient myself. To remember my fingers, my feet, and my eyes. Marlin was bleeding on the floor from a dozen wounds, deep bruising and broken bones, possibly brain damage from repeated hits to the side of the head, involuntary twitching like a fish out of water, his mouth opening and closing. Like me, he just couldn't find the words. It looked like I had beaten him with a freaking tire iron. I was taken back to my cell without a word, paraded through the halls like a prize, I could feel the other inmates staring at me, trying to figure me out. As soon as I looked their way, I saw them recoil. I don't know what they had seen, but they were looking at me like a monster. I was locked in my cell for hours and no one was allowed in. And all the while, I kept hearing something in the back of my head singing to me, asking me to listen just a little closer. And as soon as I resisted, that noise turned to pain. Within minutes, I was pacing the cell, spewing whatever nonsense came flooding through my mind. Nonsense about everything and everyone. Just noise. When the guards finally opened the door, I turned to them without skipping a beat. They had their tasers ready. Deb doesn't know if Eddie is really your son, I rambled. You'd think he was premature, but she had that time with Irvin at her job the month before. She thinks about telling you. She thinks that might just be the push you need to finally divorce. I taser to the neck and I didn't even feel it. As I dropped to the floor in a spasm, my body was screaming with laughter. He had her on the copier. She didn't even think about you. She hoped to see him there again the next week. And there, somewhere deep inside, I found my own thoughts and words standing by as someone else held the reins. I wanted to tear my ears out to make it all go away but I couldn't even move my own hands. I had listened too long and too closely, and now the guards were dragging me by the neck. They took me out to the yard and I heard them talking. They were standing next to me, carrying me, but it still sounded like they were in another room. I could barely make out their voices. The hatchet man mixed up the bloodworks, they said, and got the wrong class. Crap, we got a bloomer? We had a bloomer this whole time. It's a Christmas miracle he didn't pop his cellie. So why are we taking him out? Just making sure it's protocol. Forget protocol. I screw off. They held me in at the middle of the yard lining up in a circle around me. The guard that I had been yelling at stayed inside weeping over a picture. After a few minutes I felt a tingle in my hands. It felt like being poured back into my body like my mind was a liquid. It all came back to me one thing at a time, language, memories, senses, joys. Suddenly I was standing up. The wind was clearer out in the open, and it was colder than expected, and I wasn't even wearing my shoes. There is a stillness in the air, but there was something menacing to it, like the eye of a storm. Nothing's happening, I heard. We take him in. Hold on. Look up. From afar, it looked like snow and I didn't even question it. Snow in mid-July, sure, why not? But it wasn't snow. A white feather touched my nose. I looked up into the clouds and there, far above, I saw something looking back. I can't explain what I felt at that moment. It felt like I was looking to an eye in the sky, an impossible physical being. But there was nothing there and yet it spoke through me like playing a mind game of charades with myself. Pictures flashing in the back of my mind, trying to reach an understanding. Hundreds of memories pounding at the front of my brain every second, like a pitcher being filled up and spilling over the edge. I got a nosebleed trying to keep up. My eyes rolled back, but I still felt like I was looking up. It was easier to see with my eyes closed. My mouth seized up from trying to find a thousand words at once, instead settling on noises and grunts. There were parts that were crystal clear. It showed me memories that I didn't know that I had. It showed me my eyes opening for the first time. Little hands grabbing my mother's cardigan. Her big 80s glasses making her eyes look like a cartoon. It showed me up walking in my crib, reaching for the little toys dancing overhead. And I understood what it meant. That we were born with this instinctual drive to reach beyond our means. To stretch toward the sky. To grab and pull down the unknown to us. Making it a part of ourselves. That the most basic instinct of my being was meant to be here to do this. To reach up. No, I wheezed. All was silent. I looked down as I floated six feet off the ground. No, I groaned. Memories of long-lost dreams came rushing back. Pleasant thoughts that you don't want to wake from. Promise of love, lust, joy, and comfort. It was all there just waiting for me to take it. All I had to do was reach for it, to reach into the sky and take it. But there was something more. That eye in the sky looking down at me non belevolent not angry, not evil, just vast beyond comprehension. I was nothing more than a strand of wheat being plucked into the air by a curious farmer. No, 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 I screamed. They came running up to me, and guards grabbed my legs and pulled me down. Felt like I was being torn in half, part of me desperately reaching upwards, and my conscious self holding me to the ground. All the while, the pleasant silence was, turning from a whisper to a scream. "'We got it!' a guard yelled as the weather picked up. "'Get him out of here! Get him!' Something let go of me. The guard on my left lost his breath and he suddenly went limp. With nothing but a whistle, I saw him whisk into the sky. Not a word of protest and not a sound. Just a human life growing smaller and disappearing overhead." I dropped to the ground as they scrambled to get inside. Another guard fell flat on his stomach as something invisible grabbed his ankles. Again, a soft whistle and he was gone. A spot in the dark. Run, come on. The other guards were standing by the entrance, holding the doors open. They were waving at me and desperate for me to just run, but every part of me wanted to stay, to reach up. To touch the sky and go back to that place that I was meant to be. To feel my mother's cardigan between my baby soft fingertips. And to look into the night sky with wonder of what could be. It was all there. And yet my body knew to run. The moment that I got inside I heard thumping. Chunks of meat sprayed across the yard. Fragments of bone getting stuck in the barbed wire. Fabric torn into shreds. Whatever was up there was happy now and the howling wind was silent. We all just stood there. I could barely breathe. I had been so close to surrendering to give into it. Whatever was up there had no intention of caring for me. There was no love, no joy, no comfort. All it could promise me was a swift death at the best, or the life of a sleepless puppet. But for a moment we all just stood there. We weren't inmates and prison guards. In that moment we were all just people, trying to understand ourselves. I got processed the next day, they double-checked my blood, turns out they had contaminated my result, sloppy work from the esteemed people at Hatcher Biotechnica. This time I saw them clearly stamp my papers, blue ink in the shape of a little sunflower. I was taken out of state. They said it was a matter of security on account of getting in fights with Marlin. Apparently he had broken both legs and his shoulder, but still I knew better. This wasn't a matter of security, this was about fixing a grave mistake. This prison had a purpose, but I wasn't a part of it. Instead, I did my time in a place with no wind and now I'm out on parole. To this day, I get a shiver up my spine when I hear the whistling wind. I'm scared of my dreams and of my memories. I'm afraid there's still something in me that wants me to go back to look up. My psychiatrist, Dr. Bogan, tells me that I've got an agoraphobic trauma to deal with. She says that she has some kind of experimental treatment for it, but I don't know. Overexposure therapy sounds dangerous. But even now, I find myself suddenly waking in the middle of the night, my body talking to itself. Telling truths that I couldn't possibly know to an empty room, sometimes and not even in my own language, sometimes in no language at all. Every now and then, a white feather still stands on my shoulder, and I just know that looking up will be the end of me, or the start. With Lucky slut, you can get lucky just about anywhere. I was a correctional officer. Something unholy happened during my time in prison. Written by Doomed Geek. Going to prison was a tradition in my family. My grandfather had served time for running a moonshine business that was one of the biggest employers in town until it was shut down. My father was a thief. A clumsy one who spent more time locked up than he did at Liberty. I remember him being there for a grand total of four of my birthdays while I was growing up. And then there was my uncle. He was a fraudster whose life was saved from an angry mob more than once by an arresting police officer. I was an exception. I kept my nose clean and a couple of months after my 23rd birthday... I was successful in my application to become a correctional officer. I was bursting with joy as I got ready for my first day at work. I still lived at home but would be moving out when my wages started coming in. At the front door, my mother told me how proud she was of me and handed over a packed lunch. My father was not there. He had passed away, and my uncle was missing and unmissed. As I set off driving, I was ready to focus on the future. It was a bitingly hot day and the roads were dusty and pitted. By the time that I arrived, my bones were well shook up, and my car was spattered with dirt and with flies that had been too slow to get out of the way. The prison was the only building for miles around, and as I climbed out of my cars, one of the neighbors had padded past, its tongue hanging out of its mouth but then the coyote paused and then wondered if it was eyeing me up hungrily. It was a scrawny thing and no threat to me. I turned away. The staff parking space was outside of the prison, and I craned my neck to look up at the perimeter wall. Its concrete was old and cracked in places, but it was still a mighty impressive barrier against a possible escape. Razor wire curled along the top of the wall and there was an observation tower rising up highest of all. An officer in the tower watched me approach. I tipped my baseball cap and I smiled but he did not respond. He just kept staring his eyes hidden behind shades. I walked on. Reaching the staff entrance I took a deep breath and then I looked into a camera fixed on the wall above the door, pressed a button and I was buzzed in. The glare of the day slipped away and I was met by the smell of sweat mingled with some kind of bleach. The air was thick with it. My eyes started to sting and I was wiping my hand across them when I heard somebody say, Nah, you'll get used to it. I blinked and looked at the man who had spoken. He was in his fifties, I would have guessed, and his gray hair was shaved short. He wore a smart uniform with a shirt that was a shade darker than his hair. A name badge on his shirt read, Riley. His hand was held out for me to shake. Pleased to meet you, sir, I said. I'm Jake. Bill, he replied, "And the feelings mutual. I'll be giving you your induction. It'll be a much more civilized introduction to the prison than the inmates get. There's no body search and no delousing, and the uniform is a lot smarter as well. So, if you'll follow me, Jake, I'll show you where your locker is and you can park your cap and jeans and join the Grey Brigade. After getting changed into my uniform and stowing the key to my locker in my shirt pocket, I followed Riley along a ground-level walkway that echoed with voices calling out. Men were cussing, threatening, yelling vile things, but some were also pleading for help. These men sounded lost and scared and in pain. The cells they were locked in lined the walls of the levels above us. There were six levels in all around a square central opening. I leaned over a rail at one point and I looked up, but all I could see was darkness. How many inmates are there? I asked Riley. He shrugged before replying. Enough to keep us in a job for life there were metal steps linking each level and the boots of correctional officers sounded on them at regular intervals riley passed the base of one set of steps and led me to an elevator door lesson one he said if an alarm goes off no one is meant to use the elevators most likely cause of an alarm is an inmate disturbance and for one of those the available officers are meant to proceed on foot to the flashpoint the steps get mighty busy then, so I wait for an elevator anyway. It's much less tiring, and by the time you get there, the trouble's likely over as well. And then he gave me a conspiratorial wink, and I decided that I did not like this man. I had become a correctional officer because I genuinely believed that I could help the inmates. If my actions helped as someone turn their life around and never return to a prison, then I would be able to say that I had done a good job and maybe a child would grow up with a father at home. It appeared to me already that Riley's attitude was very different. He was clocking on and clocking off and didn't seem to care at all about the inmates. As the induction tour progressed, my mood continued to sour. I was shown all six levels and then taken round an administration block that it could have been an office anywhere in this country. I had a one-minute audience with the governor of the prison A slender man in a cotton suit who smelt of cologne and did not once look me in the eye. And then Riley left me with an HR person. As he walked away, he smiled at me in a way that made my skin crawl and then said, I'll catch you later, new boy. An afternoon spent watching mind-numbing presentations on legislation and health and safety followed. And that was it. My first day was over. And boy, was I glad. The drive back was even hotter and dustier and I did not go straight home. I did what working people the world over do after a lousy day at work. I went for a beer. The bar was quiet apart from the creak of the ceiling fan and a tune of the jukebox that kept jumping because the record was scratched. There was sawdust on the floor and likely a few teeth as well from the weekend when the good old boys liked to drive into town from their farms and drink a few beers and punch a few lights out. It being a weeknight, the only danger to health came from the hot dogs that were being served at a discount price, because they had been on a grill for more than a month. I settled myself on a stool at the bar. All I wanted was a long, cold drink. The last thing I expected was a family reunion. Only here came my uncle striding through the bar's doors and towards me. His thinning hair was slicked back. I doubted that he needed to use hair gel. He had enough natural grease. And he was smiling at me. Actually smiling and holding out his arms as if we were going to embrace. I would sooner get up close and personal with a cobra than him. Jake, he said, I was my favorite nephew. I'm better when you were out of my life. I replied. Undeterred, he sat on the stool next to me and ordered a drink. I turned to him. Seriously, man, I said, I want nothing to do with you. He took a sip of his beer, sighed, and said, Oh, don't be like that. I'm only back in town for a couple of days, just renewing old acquaintances and catching up on the news. Speaking of which, I've heard you become a pillar of the community, a correctional officer at my old alma mater. He smiled at his own joke. I scowled and snapped. "What of it?" He held his hands out wide as he said, "Ah, oh, nothing whatsoever, apart from to say good on you. I just hope you're doing okay. Prison can be a tough environment for a thoughtful guy, whatever side of the bars that he's on, you know what I'm saying." "Yeah, real tough," I muttered and stared into my drink. He put his now empty glass down. He was looking at me with his bloodshot eyes. He was an old man now, and he had thrown away his life on lies and shabby dreams. I felt sorry for him in that moment. I might even have bought him a beer. But before I could, he took a deep breath and said, I'm in trouble, Jake. I owe money to some real bad people, and I needed a way to dig myself out of a hole. So I did the only thing that I could. I told the people that I owe that I'm related to a correctional officer, and that maybe he could be persuaded to do them a favor. They have a good friend who's in the prison who is real keen at escaping, and hey, I thought. I shot to my feet and cut him off. Don't go there, I hissed. If you think that I'm going to break the law to save your neck, then you are very much mistaken. In fact, the next thing I'm going to do is phone the police and tell them what you just said. He shook his head and said quietly, You don't want to do that, Jake. I explained to the men that my nephew was an upstanding citizen, so it would need a really strong reason to help them. A cold chill ran down my spine. What have you done? I asked. Oh, I took a ride with them earlier out to your home. Introduced them to your mother. She's with them now, out of town. Someplace that no one will find her. And she is safe, and she will continue to be so, long as you play ball. You need to help their friend break out of prison. That's where we're at. Take this burner phone, they'll use it to contact you. He placed a cheap-looking mobile by my clenched fist, and then his vile bargain laid out. He left the bar. There was no physical trail of slime, but there might as well have been. I was horrified and furious. Rage pulsed through my body. There was no way that I was going to do this, I told myself. No way. I started to phone the police half a dozen times and then I thought of my mother, of what the men might do to her, and I hung up. My mind was racing. I stayed at the bar until it closed and nursing a drink, and then I walked the streets of my hometown. At dawn, I got back in my car and I drove to work. I had made the only decision that I could to protect my mother, and I would break a man out of prison. I had no idea how, but I would have to find a way. I was just pulling up in the staff parking area when the burner phone rang. I answered, ''Yes.'' The voice on the other end of the line was gravelly. ''Do we have a deal?'' ''Let me speak to my mother,'' I said. The gravelly voice shot back with, ''That's real sweet but answer my question.'' ''I'll do what you want,'' I replied through gritted teeth. Though I don't know how I meant to do it. Relax, he said. We got a plan. A drug was smuggled into the prison for our mutual friend. A very special one that we acquired over the deep web. Now that we brought you on board, we'll get a message to him and who will take it. It will make him seem sick real quick and real bad. And they'll need to take him to the hospital. You make sure that you go with him. No matter what the medics do, he'll get sicker and die. You rustle his body out of the hospital, and then, here's the magic part, he'll come back from the dead. He was never a corpse, it was just the drug making him appear so. He'll be full of beans. You bring him to us, job done, and everyone walks away happy. Now you have a lovely day. And with that, the call ended. I slammed the phone against the dashboard and cursed. I could only hope that my mother was unharmed. I sat there for a while, trying to get some composure back. I was soaked in sweat and I must have looked half-crazed. Eventually, I climbed out of the car and headed for the prison. I felt nauseous and terrified of what the day would bring. I had just finished getting changed when Riley had appeared. Jake, my boy... "'Riley said, you look like the type to volunteer because you're keen to impress and slide up the ladder to success. "'Well, I have the perfect opportunity for you. "'One of the inmates has been taken ill. "'He collapsed in his cell, sweating and fitting and looking real green. "'The warden's called an ambulance and asked me to keep an eye on the prisoner when he's taken to the hospital. "'But how about I do you a favor? "'I'll let you go on my place.' He was right in my face by now and I could smell his bad breath, his stale sweat. I swallowed down bile that had risen into the back of my mouth and said, Sure, why not? Anything to help? After all, Riley's laziness had just made a big piece of the plan fall into place. He grinned and slapped me on the shoulder. You're gonna go far, Jake, my boy. Now go fetch our sick inmate and wait for him outside until the ambulance arrives. We don't want him expiring in our nice, clean jail. 30 minutes later, I found myself getting into the back of an ambulance. Riley had insisted that I stay handcuffed to the prisoner at all times, but once the doors of the ambulance were closed and he was out of sight, I unlocked the handcuffs and I sat back. Both paramedics were riding up front. I would expect expected one to stay with the patient while the other drove. It was clear, though, that neither wanted to get too close to the man and I couldn't blame them. He was skinny and shaven-headed and heavily tattooed. When he grimaced, I could see that he was even tattooed on his gums, and he was grimacing a lot, and moaning and shaking and sweating. He looked incredibly pale, like the life was draining out of him. I had no idea what dubious drug he had taken to fake his illness, but it seemed horribly real to me. In fact... If he was not actually seriously ill, then he deserved a statute. I imagined his acceptance speech. I would like to thank my shady characters everywhere. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you. And then I suppressed a hysterical laugh. I needed to hold it together for my mother's sake. By the time we arrived at the hospital and the prisoner was being strapped to a trolley to be wheeled inside, the sun was high in the sky. I could feel the heat coming off the tarmac through the soles of my shoes as I stood by him, supposedly guarding him. He had stopped moving by now and he just lay there. Harsh, irregular breathing escaped his lips and his eyelids flickered. I thought of how life is meant to flash before your eyes in your last moments and I shivered despite the intense heat. The paramedics pushed him through some double doors using the trolley in the prisoner's feet like a battering ram. And then they steered the trolley against one side of a corridor and started to walk away. ''Where are you going?'' I called after him. Without looking back, one of them replied, ''The ER is full. We're going to see when there'll be a space available.'' My shoulders slumped and I sat down in a plastic chair on the other side of the corridor and I waited. And I waited... More than an hour must have passed before a young exhausted looking man in scrubs had appeared. He looked at the prisoner, checked his pulse and shone a little torch into his eyes. And then he turned to me and said, I'm sorry, your friend is gone. And then he walked away. He's not my friend. I said to the empty corridor and I went back to waiting. I assumed that the man in scrubs would be doing some kind of paperwork to note the time and cause of death and requesting the body be taken to the hospital morgue. But as the minutes ticked by, no one came. There was just me and the body on the trolley. I got to my feet and I took a deep breath. I could still have walked away, told the governor at the prison and the police that my mother had been kidnapped and that I was being forced to help a prisoner escape. But I didn't. I crossed another line. I wheeled the trolley and the body back out into the open. I wheeled him along for 10 minutes or so, the trolley rattling and hard to steer, and the body staring up at the bright blue sky through eyes the doctor had not closed. I reached a quieter part of the parking lot and saw a car that was the same make and model as my own. I had seen an article online once about how all these types of cars can be worked by the same set of keys. I remembered that now and tried clicking the doors to unlock. Which they did. Add stealing a car to helping a prisoner escape from prison, I thought. And I unstrapped the body and manhandled it into the back seat. The engine started for his time and we rolled out of the parking lot. I put the radio on. A country and western singer was lamenting the fact that his woman had left him and taken his dog. I changed channels. Found one that had rolling news. I wanted to listen off for reports of a body being stolen from a hospital. As I drove, I kept glancing in the mirror at the body on the back seat. I recalled the words of the man with the gravelly voice clearly. Now here's the magic part: he'll come back from the dead. He was never a corpse. It was just the drug making him appear so. He'll be full of beans. There was no magic on that tan fake leather seat. Just a shape that had once been a man, which was starting to smell real bad. I turned the air conditioning to full, but it didn't really help. The smell of death grew and filled the car, and eventually, I had to pull over. I stood at the side of the road, a dry heaving. A truck roared past, and the driver sounded his horn. Apart from that, I was alone. I straightened up. This was a hideous mess. I was now on the run, a lawbreaker, and the man that I had helped break out was actually dead. That had not been the plan. I cussed to myself and paced up and down, desperately trying to think what I should do. First things first, I decided I needed to get rid of the body, otherwise it would draw attention to me. I took my shirt off, wrapped it around my nose and face and got back in the car. I steered it off-road and hoped the suspension wouldn't break as we bumped over the cracked dirt of the empty land which lay all around. After a few miles, I figured that I had found a spot that would have to do. There was no sign of life, not even a coyote or a buzzard or a desiccated tree hanging on in there. I parked up. I didn't have anything to dig with other than my bare hands, so I used them to start clawing at the soil. It was exhausting and slow, but after a while, I had a shallow grave. I returned to the car and hauled the body out and dragged it over to its final resting place. I laid it out, closed its eyes because that seemed like a decent thing to do, and I sunk to my knees. I wasn't about to say a prayer. I was simply worn out and needed to find the strength from somewhere to cover the body up. I was about to start shoveling dirt when the body opened its eyes and asked in a weak voice, ''What are you doing?'' I fell backwards, sat there open-mouthed with shock. The honest answer to the question, Burying you, was not something that I could bring myself to say. Instead, I said, helping you escape. The body smiled. He smiled. The man who, after all, was alive. I helped him to his feet, clasping his hands in mine. They felt disgustingly cold, and when he stood face to face... His skin looked worse than ever, and as for his smell this close up, it was all that I could do not to hurl on the spot. Where to now, he asked. Well, we need to ask your friends that, I replied. I hadn't heard from them again. On the plus side, that meant they wouldn't know that I had just tried to bury the man alive. But I really did need to speak to them, to let them know that I would be able to deliver the man to them and then I could be reunited with my mother. I helped the man over to the car. He was very weak and could only shuffle along, dragging his feet painfully slowly along the ground. I sat him in the back seat and then went to retrieve the phone. The number that had called was showing an unidentified, and the signal out here was very weak, which meant that it was time to get moving again and get close enough to civilization to have a good signal and hope that they called soon. Forty minutes or so later, my hopes were answered. I had rejoined the highway when the phone began to ring. I answered before it made it to the second ring. I have him, I said. He's back from the dead. There was a pause on the other end of the line. I did not know whether the hiss I could hear was interference or breathing, and my patience was at a breaking point. Are you there? I yelled. I kept my part of the deal. Now you need to keep yours. Finally, the man with the gravelly voice spoke. Chill, dude, he said. Your mom is fine, she says hello. But it'll be a little while long before you can see her. We have amended the plan. Your uncle was proven to be a liability. So, we have removed him from the equation. Permanently. That means there is a little more heat on us than is ideal. So... What you're going to do for us is to drive our friend to a little shack that we know, just south of the borderline, and we'll meet you all there. It'll be quite the reunion, don't you think? I bit my tongue. If I had told him exactly what I was thinking then, I would be putting my mother's life in more danger. So I just listened as he gave me directions to the shack and then hung up. I pulled up. My heart was beating fit to burst and I needed a moment to take stock. The shack was a long drive and there were no towns on the way, just mile after mile of the parched, empty earth. I checked the fuel gauge, there wouldn't be enough and I needed water as well. I turned round to my passenger in the back seat and said, ''Okay, I know where I'm headed now, but I'll need to try and find somewhere to stop off to get fuel for the car and fuel for me, well and you, I'm assuming that you're thirsty.'' His eyes were closed and his mouth was slightly open, and he didn't seem to have noticed a fat fly was crawling down his cheek. It continued on its way and disappeared between his lips. I shuddered and said, ''Did you hear me? Are you thirsty?'' His eyelids finally flickered open and he shook his head. ''Not thirsty,'' he said in a hoarse whisper, ''but hungry, very hungry.'' He looked at me with eyes that blazed with a dark intensity. My guts tightened, cramping with unease. I said nothing else, and I turned around and started the engine. We drove on, and I saw nothing for a long time. It was like someone had reached down and wiped away all sign of humanity and left just layers of dust, stretching out as far as the eye could see. The fuel gauge was creeping down, the dial introducing itself to the red line. I had a pounding headache and my vision was blurring. I was badly dehydrated. Just when I was thinking that it was hopeless, a small cluster of shapes appeared ahead. On the right of the highway, it was a truck stop. Yes, I thought. I would have punched the air, but I didn't have the strength. I coasted onto the forecourt of the fueling station. There was a diner just beyond this, but it was closed and a spiderweb of cracks filled one of its windows so I had to hope the booth next to the station sold water. An attendant wearing a t-shirt that rose up over his belly stood inside behind a counter. He put a piece of gum in his mouth and chewed it slowly as I struggled to get the nozzle into my car and then waited while the pump had what sounded like an attack of indigestion before finally the petrol began to flow. And then I went to pay. Inside the booth the air conditioning sounded like a death rattle and the heat took my breath away. It was intense outside, but in here it felt malicious. Feeling dizzy, I walked up to the counter and took out a card. The attendant looked at me and pointed at a sign propped up on the counter that read, Cash only, no credit, no beatniks. I sighed and dug around in my pockets until I found enough crumpled bills to cover the cost of the petrol. Do you have bottled water? I asked before I paid. "'Got a faucet out the back,' he replied. "'After paying, I went round the back. "'Even though I was dehydrated, "'I needed to relieve myself "'and I could not face using the truly disgusting-looking restroom. "'After apologizing to Mother Nature, "'I did what I had to do, "'and then splashed water on my hands and face "'and drank as much as I dared. "'It tasted foul. "'I hadn't been gone long when I returned to the car.' The man had been sitting in the back seat, staring into space when I had gone out to fuel up, and I had assumed that he would stay like that. But the car was empty. I looked around. The door to the booth hung open, and there was no sign of the attendant. With a sinking feeling in my stomach, I approached the booth and looked inside, and I was met by a grotesque sight. My passenger was knelt over the attendant and was biting him, and there was blood everywhere. I ran forwards, so grabbed the man and pulled him away. You crazy SOB, I yelled. What do you think you're doing? He seemed to be in some kind of daze and started to crawl away on his hands and knees. I exhaled deeply, leaned over and felt the attendant's neck. No pulse. You killed him, I said. And I looked back but the man was gone, crawling back to the car. I chased after him and he was already inside. I was lost for words. This had spiraled out of control now. But I was already in so deep and there was no going back. I had to keep going until my mother was safe. I clambered back behind the wheel and started the car. We pulled away and I glanced back at the scene of the crime to see the attendant was standing just outside the booth. His eyes looked glazed over and he was covered in raw bite marks and blood, but he was back on his feet. Somehow, as I stared, he began to shuffle slowly forward. I turned my attention back to the highway, and I floored the accelerator. With the truck stop disappearing into the distance, I glanced at the man in the back seat. He was licking blood from his lips, and there were small lumps of meat in the blood. Not blood, I thought, it's flesh. A wave of fear and repulsion passed through my body. I gritted my teeth once more and drove. Over the hours that followed, my passenger drifted in and out of lucidity. Sometimes, he spoke words that I could recognize. The odd phrase, though nothing he said, really made sense. At other times, he would snarl. A sickening, guttural sound that chilled me to the core. I tried to focus on the road ahead. The sun was sinking lower in the sky. Dusk was close. And then, thankfully, the shack came into view. It was a beat up pile of tin and wood by the side of the road, and there was another car there with two men leaning against its side, and I could see my mother in the back seat. She was alive, a slim, fragile figure hugging herself. I said a silent word of thanks and I started to slow down. Almost there, I thought, and then the man in the back seat leaned forwards. I could feel his breath hot and rancid on my neck as he said, I'm so hungry. How about I bite a bit off of you? A bit you don't need, say so your nose or an ear. Or maybe a bit of a brain. I saw a show on cable once where a mad had no cerebellum, and he was fine. He did not need that part of his brain. Oh, his delicious brain. As he spoke it, it finally dawned on me what he was. I had been blind, how could I have not realized? He wasn't alive, he was still dead. A dead man in the back seat of my car, drool dripping from his mouth, his teeth bared, and about to attack me. As he had attacked the attendant at the truck stop, I slammed on the brakes and I leaped out of the door. The two men, leaning against the car, straightened up when they saw me. We got a problem, one of them asked, and I recognized from his gravelly voice that he was the man that I had been speaking to. No problem, I lied. Your friend isn't here, and he was. He had managed to get the door open, and he was shuffling towards the two men. They were smiling now and moving towards them, holding their arms out, ready to embrace. They hadn't realized yet, didn't understand this wasn't their friend anymore. He was a monster, and he was ravenous, and now he was within biting rage. He dug his teeth into the first one, and then the other. Blood had begun to fly. The men were screaming and trying to fight him, but their efforts were useless, and moments later they were falling to the ground where they lay motionless. I took the opportunity to race to their car. My mother had passed out. Witnessing what was happening must have been too much for her. I lifted her and ran back to my vehicle, while the men that I had driven here stood there gorging himself. It was a hideous sight. I reached my car, I gently placed my mother in the passenger seat and pulled the seatbelt over her to keep her secure. And then I heard the sound of groaning and I looked up. The two men who had been carrying moments ago were back on their feet, reanimated as the attendant had been. And they were staggering towards me. The blood dripping down their faces and clothes shone in the remnants of the evening sun. Their open wounds that glistened. The first man swallowed a final chunk that he had torn from one of them and then followed in their wake. I rushed around to the other side and started the engine. They were too close for me to reverse away, so I drove straight at them. Their bodies collided sickingly with the front of the car, but I was through them. The windshield was smeared with blood. One windscreen mirror was broken off and one remained. I looked in it as I drove away. They were getting up. I accelerated, I had only one thought on my mind, I needed to get my mother to somewhere safe, somewhere far away from the zombies shuffling down the dusty highway in the fading light. Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode. HelloFresh meals have become some of the most popular meals in my home. HelloFresh sends farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients straight to your door, delicious and easy to make recipes included. With the holidays just around the corner, HelloFresh has made this busy time of the year so much easier for me. Because the delicious, chef-crafted recipes and pre-packaged ingredients are delivered right to your home, you can spend less time meal planning and prepping and more time with your family and doing all of the busy things that come with the holidays. In addition to making your life easier, it also frees up some extra money for holiday shopping. HelloFresh allows you to save money on dinner due to it being cheaper than regular grocery shopping and it's also 25% less expensive than takeout. And Personally, this has not only made preparing dinner an easier and more enjoyable experience for myself, but it has also saved me some money to start holiday shopping a bit earlier this year for family and friends. Additionally, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there is something for everyone. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65 and use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65. Use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I am a deep sea researcher, and we've just found something terrifying. Written by Point of No Return. Before I start this report, I must clarify that any mention of my colleagues, their names, or personal information is to be altered for security purposes. I have a compromise with the truth but also with the well-being and safety of my co-workers and fellow researchers. That said, this is a secret that I cannot bear maintaining for any longer. I've been a deep-sea researcher for over 15 years, and well-recognized for my research collaborations among my peers. I've worked for a certain European institute for the better part of my career, but it all changed three months ago. It was when me and other researchers were assigned to a new project, aboard the Diana Research Vessel, stationed close to the geographic center of the Pacific Ocean. We all knew very little about what we were getting into, but we were sure of one thing. Whatever it was, it was important. The project was a global collaboration, the European Marine Board, The International Seabed Authority and the United Nations, DESA, are among some of the involved. But there were many more. Still, it was all a well-kept secret. No coverage of the international media and no questions were being asked, at least what I was aware of. There were three other research vessels doing pretty much the same work as ours on different territories of the Pacific, I don't want to get into the technicalities of my work, the scientific jargons or the terminology, so I'll try to keep my explanation as simple as possible. I truly believe that everyone should understand the importance of this discovery. As soon as we had boarded the Diana, the details of the project were elaborated upon and we were instructed into our research. We were to investigate oceanic sound waves traveling through the SOFAR channel and first reported by Kiribati researchers a mere months ago. I remember talking to my colleague Marco after we got our briefing, as we didn't understand the secrecy of the project. Deep-sea earthquakes propagating sound waves that were caught by hydrophones were nothing new. So what was all the fuss about? Felt like our superiors knew more than they were letting us know, but soon enough we discovered why. These sound waves came from certain oceanic trenches of the Hadal zone, the deepest region of the ocean. It was the zone that most attracted the curiosity of amateurs and researchers alike, as the intense pressure made exploration difficult. Sunlight was incapable of reaching those immense depths, but even with a distinct lack of light and of primary producers, life flourished even in the darkest regions of the ocean. Species of Heterograph Organisms were known to exist and live, traversing the Dark Abyss. Many submersibles had been carefully constructed over the years to explore the Hadopelagic Zone, but plenty were now defunct, having been lost or gotten crushed by the intense pressure. So the Zone has always been a big unknown and efforts of exploration were progressing with very small stops. But now this has changed. The sound waves that we were investigating were originally thought to be the result of profound earthquakes, but as we progressed in our research, it soon became clear that it couldn't be the cause, because the sound followed a pattern. We studied the mentioned sound pattern for days and got to understand why it had attracted so much attention. The phenomenon was discovered shortly after it had started, but now it was being reported in different regions of the Pacific hence the other research vessels scattered across the ocean, and all that sound was stemming from the bottom of the Hadal zone. It repeated itself daily almost down to the minute, for over six or seven hours and of course, carefully compensating for the many kilometers these sound waves had to travel to reach our hydrophones, and then it seemed to cease abruptly. It's hard to describe how it sounded like. Initially it felt similar to other underwater earthquakes, but for a trained ear paying close attention, it was possible to spot the differences. Speaking in an informal tone, it's as if there was an immense drum very deep down in the ocean, being played every day. Our first hypothesis was some kind of geological anomaly, 11,000 meters down below. We traded information and discoveries with the other research vessels, but it soon got clear to all of us that it was pretty much impossible to determine what was happening and why it was spreading through analysis of these sound waves alone we had to get down there and see for ourselves the problem was of course the immense depths and the extreme pressure many submersibles had attempted to reach the bottom of the Hadal zone and suffered the consequences of it and according to our calculations we had to go even deeper than at the international record approximately 11.2 meters, or 36 feet below sea level. If we wanted to catch a glimpse of what was truly happening. And that also revealed to us something that had been previously theorized. There was a new, deepest known spot in the ocean, where the sound had originated from. The mystery of that discovery certainly instigated us, and we wanted to go further. The issue was discussed with our superiors and not to my surprise, they had already considered the possibility. Our answer came in the form of Profundo, a sophisticated rove developed by other researchers and engineers with technology that allowed it to support extreme pressures, and the promise that it could dive deeper than any other human submersible. It had already been tested but this particular mission would fully utilize its maximum capabilities. I remember well the day that we put Profundo to use, our team was reunited at the control center where we would guide its movements as it delved deep underwater. Profundo's camera would record everything that it found, and we monitored its slow descent. It would take many hours to reach the desired spot. We had carefully planned the descent, so the rove would reach its destination in time to caught the source of the noise. I was in present during much of the dive, however, there wasn't that much to see. The light from the surface could still be discerned for a while and every now and then a curious fish would pass by. But after we reached the abyssal pelagic zone, then there was mostly darkness. I remember staring at the transmission with my colleagues, discussing hypothesis. We were all eager to find out what was truly happening so far below the sea level. The rove was at a point in which there was no difference between water and darkness, and all that was clearly visible was the marine snow, organic leftovers that were a source of food for many deep-sea species. We were mostly focused on our research to notice anything unusual. However, but we all got together to witness Profundo's breaking the world record as it dove into the oceanic trench below, more than 11,000 meters. Someone opened up a bottle of wine and we commemorated. Even though the mission was far from done and we didn't even know if the rove would be able to keep resisting the intense pressure. There was this nice feeling of accomplishment. We waited for hours and now we were closer to the origin of these sound waves than we had ever been. So the team once again reunited. Not long after as Profundo finally reached its destination. On the bottom of the abyss in the seabed... We were at the desired area, and the sand beneath Profundo stretched across the dark horizon. The rove was, resisting well against the pressure, but we knew we should get the job done and not count our luck. It started to move, and we were all watching, carefully guiding its movements as we explored that unknown place. However, we couldn't find anything. It was difficult to see, but there wasn't anything visible that could be the source of the noise. We were in the most profound depths of the ocean, and it seemed completely empty. So we decided to wait until the sound waves started propagating again in the next few hours. It was then that my colleague Erica caught sight of something. It's over there, she said. I'm sure of it, it's not far, about 18 feet that direction. Think that we could reach it. We could, and the rove slowly made its way. As we approached, the transmission seemingly became more clear, and strange shapes and shadows transfigurated by the water were now getting closer. And then I saw something that I will never forget. Oh god, Erica uttered. Holy crap, said Marco. And I could only stare appalled. I couldn't take my eyes off that otherworldly vision. The ocean bottom was filled with hundreds of gigantic human statues immense figures scattered across the dark ocean floor. We couldn't even see all that there was to them, but they were undoubtedly human. Now down, faces fixated on the sand and arms stretching upwards, almost as if they were holding something above their heads, holding the entire ocean like Atlas. That's the best way that I can describe it. It's as if they were Greek sculptures, bald figures without clothes but a seemingly perfect human anatomy. We couldn't believe it. It was just too surreal. None of us had expected that sight. There were hundreds of them as far as the robes camera could see, both figures of men and women. However, there was no sense of wonder for what could have been the biggest discovery of the 21st century. Only dread as we tried to rationalize what we were seeing. Looking at those things that didn't feel right... It provoked a strangest sense of urgency, and even fear that something that I thought it was just me, but soon noticed it affected everyone in the room. It was as if we were seeing something that we shouldn't be, something forbidden. We were scientists, but still, there was no explanation that could justify that feeling. It was all recorded, thankfully, because after the initial feeling of surprise had vanished, I couldn't bear to look at them any longer. Those immense, lifeless figures. None of us could, well, except for Erica. Soon we all left, but her, that wanted to continue the row of investigations by herself. For some reason, most of the research team felt sick after seeing these statues, and we had to take a break. We had a meeting shortly after to discuss hypotheses. Plenty of possibilities were raised, such as these statues being the remains of an ancient civilization something that could forever change our world history. But it still didn't explain how deep they were in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, how many of them there were, and how they were connected to the sound waves. Not only that, but their size alone made that possibility unlikely. Working on a quick estimate, someone proposed that they should be at least 181 meters in height. How could an ancient civilization build even one? Not to mention those statues probably existed in the hundreds. We decided to present the recordings to our superiors and they were as appalled with the discovery as we were. There was nothing logical about what we were seeing and still that existed. It was there many kilometers below us in that very moment. Our discussion went on and on as we analyzed the already recorded footage and seemingly forgot about the sound waves and the rope transmission that Erica was still monitoring. That is, until we heard her scream. We rushed in the direction of the control room. I was one of the first to get there, only to catch sight of a terrified woman sitting at the corner of the room, face buried between her legs, trembling and sobbing uncontrollably. The screen showed only static. The transmission had been cut out exactly after the sound waves were marked to start, and the rove had been lost. We approached Erica carefully, but she could only tremble. Her eyes were dilated, fixated on the floor, and she was crying uncontrollably. She couldn't say anything. Erica was one of the most intelligent and focused researchers that I ever knew. So serious about her work to the point of being stoic. And whatever she saw in that transmission had left her terrified beyond words. She was taken to our medical facility and even after she had stopped crying and took some pills, she still wouldn't say a word. Only look at us with a thousand yard stare, as if her own mind was trapped deep down in the ocean, along with those terrible statues. We tried to recover the recording, but it had been either corrupted or deleted, maybe by Erica herself. Whatever she saw was lost, along with Profundo deep in that trench. There was no way to do a recovery effort and frankly we didn't know how to proceed. Erica was the only one that could give us some answers but not until she recovered. So we let her rest. But the next day she vanished without a trace. We searched the entire ship and there was no sign of Erica no matter where we looked. She had a husband and two daughters waiting for her back home and now she's gone. My only fear is that she too has been lost to the ocean she saw something that she should into now it won't let her go. We don't know why the statues are down there. We don't know their purpose or what is their relation to the terrible sound waves. We don't know why this effect is seemingly propagating itself across the ocean and how to stop it, but we are trying our best. Still, contrary to my superiors, I believe that this must be known. If this is dangerous and though we have no proof of it, my primary instincts say it's so, then you all must be warned and we must prepare. As I close my report, I must mention that all of this takes me back to a quote by Werner Herzog, that now abides by a new sense over what we have just experienced. Life in the oceans must be sheer pain, a vast, merciless place of permanent and immediate danger. So much of that during evolution some species, including man, crawled and fled onto some small continents of solid land where the lessons of darkness continue. I worked the night shift at a gas station. People have been going missing. Written by Saturday. I was there for three years. The station had an auto shop attached but was rarely needed at night, so I typically just dealt with people coming for gas. Occasionally, I'd be asked to work in a car overnight from the day shift. One time, I found several bags of a substance leaking out from the driver's seat. I was nervous the owners would know that I saw it, so I stuffed the bags back in. The station was out on a country road, so the types of customers that I generally served were truckers or farmers or the random couple driving home from a date. However, there were the anomalies. The car accidents, the drunk driver that killed a small family in the intersection out front. There was a vicious, blazing inferno coming out of that minivan. The dad made it out, but he was on fire and he died in the middle of the road. One time, I served a gas to someone who was being chased by the police. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought the driver was in a hurry. I was robbed at gunpoint twice. It was these same two ski-masked guys, too. They just took turns speaking between the two incidents. Then there was the time an old guy drove up, and got out of his car, and died of a heart attack two steps later. Those incidents were normal, or at least understandable, explainable. But there was one night something unexplainable happened. It was shortly after 3am. Headlights drove in carrying a 1966 Pontiac Bonneville two-door coupe. A thin trail of smoke was coming from under the hood. The inside of the windows were all fogged up. So I couldn't really see the interior of the car or the occupants. The car drove past the gas station and right into the auto shop. The lights weren't even on inside the shop, but the headlights lit it up. I went to greet the driver and I flipped on the overhead lights of the shop, but they came on weak and dim. The driver's side door opened as I approached, and I was immediately hit with a stench of old, damp cloth and dust. A middle-aged man got out uneasily, like his knees were made of twigs. He wore one of those black Quaker hats with dark hair spiking from under it and a graying goatee. The man's face was covered in lines and wrinkles and his eyes sunk back into his head. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. Check the oil, check the engine. He choked out and walked past me, fumbling out an old box of matches. The passenger door closed and a middle-aged woman stood there. She had thick, dark hair that looked like it was greased through with gel and matted to her head an uneven set of bangs cut across her forehead. The woman carried the same sunken eyes as the man, but her face was covered in days-old makeup, rosy cheeks, blue eyeliner, and red lipstick. Even through the smearing, you could tell that it was applied with heavy exaggeration. And then the woman smiled at me, and I wish she hadn't. Her teeth were dirty orange and speckled with black dots. Her gums were dark gray, I noticed she only had the front six teeth on her upper and lower jaws. She didn't appear to have any molars, which I shouldn't know, but she couldn't stop smiling to reveal that. The moment the woman saw me, her lips had stretched into a wide-mouthed grin that curved downward like a catfish. It was a strange and frightening smile, like it was pulled and stretched over a screaming face. The woman began speaking to me, But she spoke so softly that I couldn't hear her. I kept leaning forward, trying to get a better ear, but the closer that I got, the further her voice sounded. And then I realized that we were inches from each other's faces. Her breath was rancid as she spoke, and I finally heard what she was saying. Don't go in the car. The woman pulled back and I saw the scream behind the smile in her eyes. She was terrified, Joan, the driver was already outside the auto shop lighting up a dirty looking home rolled cigarette. The woman Joan followed in. She looked back, continuing to smile, but her eyes told a story of desperation and horror. They gave me chills and I was happy the two were going to wait outside. I watched the strange couple walk down to the edge of the gas station where I made up the corner of a quiet, country intersection. I turned to the car, not really sure what to do. After I couldn't get under the hood, I figured there was a release hatch under the steering wheel. I went to the driver's side door and saw the window was down. I leaned in through the window and searched and fumbled until I found the latch. I flicked it open and saw the hood pop up. As I was pulling myself out, a thought struck me. The window was up when the man drove in. It was up when he had walked off. How did it get down? And then my eyes caught the rearview mirror and what was in the back seat. There was a little boy staring at me. He sat calmly in the middle seat with his seatbelt still on. He had a strange, swirthing facial scar that reminded me of a boy I went to grade school with named Johnny Watkins. He had been attacked by a dog when he was little and large portions of his face were horrendously scarred. That's what this little boy looked like. And he had something that looked like mud and dirt smeared around his mouth and chin. The same smears were on his hands and wrists. The boy wore old, dirty overalls and a flannel shirt underneath. His eyes were locked on me. They carried an accusatory glare, like he was catching me stealing. I quickly blurted out, Hey buddy, just checking out the engine then, we'll get you and your parents on their way. The boy stared back, his brow furrowed down at the center angrily. They're not my parents, he choked out, and then he started to make a strange sound. I couldn't tell what it was at first, but then it became clear. The boy was laughing in his own odd way. It was like his breath was hitching up repeatedly during the inhale. I didn't know what to do or say, so I pulled myself out of the window and made my way to the hood. I looked out and saw Joan and the man were still at the corner, smoking and arguing. I popped the hood up and was greeted with a cloud of smoke. I figured that it was a motor oil spill or a leak at first. And then I stared down at the engine and I had no idea what to make of it. It looked foreign, but also homemade. It was all connected and had metal plates fastened around it, protecting parts of the wiring and cable, so it was next to impossible to see what was wrong. I honestly didn't know what I was looking at, but I managed to find what looked like a small handle for a dipstick, and I twisted and I pulled it out. It was for the oil. I cleaned it, put it back in and pulled it to inspect. Basically dry. The little oil at the end felt gritty. It needed a change. The car was parked over our lift so I didn't have to get in to move it. But I couldn't leave the kid in there. He had to get out, safety precautions and all. I went to the driver's side window but the window was up again. I tried to open the door but it was locked. I went over to the passenger's side and found it locked too. I peered in through the dirty windows to try and signal to the boy to open the door, but the back seat was empty. The car was empty and he was gone. The only explanation that I could come up with was that the back seats of the car pulled down and they allowed access to the trunk. So I checked the trunk but it was also locked. I knocked on it trying to get the boy's attention if he was inside, but nothing came back. I looked outside, but I couldn't see Joan or the man. I was confused and nervous, and all I could think to do was explain that our lift wasn't working, so they would need to get their oil changed at another shop in the next few days, and then I would send them on their way. A loud clunk made me jump. On the other side of the garage, a loose wrench was on the ground. I walked over to it and picked it up. It had a small, child-sized, muddy handprint on it, and suddenly that odd laugh echoed out from somewhere within the garage. I raised the wrench to swing, but there was nothing to swing at. The loud metal rattling of the front, a retracting door, a slamming shut made me yell. I went over to inspect the now-shut door, but as I did, the retracting metal doors at the back slammed shut as well. At this point, I figured the kid was messing with me, so I called out to him, telling him playtime was over and to come on out. And then the power went out. The garage was completely black. Not a single window could be seen. I tried to open the front metal gate, but it wouldn't budge. It was like it was welded shut. shot. More metal tools clanged against the ground. One slammed against the metal door right beside my head. And another. The boy's hitched laughter croaked out from somewhere in the darkness of the shop. I couldn't see anything but knew the layout of the garage inside out and backwards. There was a flashlight on the far end of the wall to my right. There were shelves along the wall and a wide workbench that I could follow. I moved along the metal door to the wall and I found the edge of the bench. The boy's laughter got louder. Echoing through the garage It stopped sounding human though It was more hyena-like And the source of the laughter was getting closer to me With it, I felt a hot, rotten breath assaulting my nostrils It followed me along the bench and towards the end of the wall Through laughing, the boy quietly repeated I'm gonna find ya, I'm gonna find ya My foot hit what felt like a ratchet wrench which loudly skittered across the metal grating on the floor. Was that you? The boy squealed out. Realizing that I still the wrench in my hands I first picked up, I threw it across the garage, hoping to hit the back wall and cause a distraction. It left my hand, but it never landed. There you are, the voice called out through laughing. Something shuffled behind me. I hit the end of the bench and I reached up, knocking over multiple tools and causing a series of loud crashes. But I didn't care. I felt the flashlight grip and I turned it on, spinning and pointing the light behind me. I wish I hadn't. The boy was two feet from me, and I only saw his face for a moment, but that was enough. The boy's facial scar had unraveled, like layers of extra skin and some strange face scarf covering. Only the fleshy layers were actually attached to him, and they contained rows of needle-like teeth on the inside. When the skin flap opened, it tripled the original diameter of his mouth. I screamed and fell backward. I expected to hit the ground and immediately have the boy's frightening mouth biting down on my face or neck. I hit the pavement outside the garage instead. The lights of the gas station poured over me. I looked back into the garage from my back. The lights were on. The metal door was open. The Bonneville was still and silent. The windows closed and clear. Footsteps approached from behind me, and I scrambled up, and I turned to see Joan and the man had returned. He flicked his cigarette butt and approached me and mumbled. How much? I couldn't speak. My lower jaw moved, but all I could stammer out was, don't worry about it. The man shrugged and walked back to the car. I turned and found Joan there, staring up at me. She was whispering something quickly and repeatedly. I leaned in and I heard it clearly. Shoulda listened, shoulda listened, shoulda listened. The man called out from the car, snapping Joan back to him. Still smiling, Joan shook her head at me, tears rolling down her cheeks and dark smears. She walked back to the car and got in. The Bonneville started up and drove past me. The windows were no longer blurred by fog so I could see inside clearly. I saw the man staring straight ahead, Joan sitting passenger beside him smiled out at me with worried eyes and then I saw the back seat it was empty the boy was gone I was so afraid that I locked the garage and the gas station checked my car then got in and drove for an hour before ever stopping I called my boss and I told him that I was violently ill and that I had to lock up early for the night he was less than impressed but I didn't care I couldn't go back there. And I didn't. I gave my two weeks and I called in sick for each shift. I never went back to the garage and I try to avoid gas stations in general at night now. But it's not just that. Now whenever I hear someone laugh, I hear that boy's laugh. That same odd upward hitch. No matter the person, every giggle or cackle comes out the same. And sometimes it turns into that high pitched hyena cackle. It's been happening more and more. It feels like one of those flus that start slow and take their time weakening your immune system before leveling you. And then tonight happened. I came home and there was a small, muddy handprint on the door handle of my apartment. And there was one on the inside too. We thought McDonald's was running a contest. The truth was much more sinister. Written by Frost Jr. My friend RJ has always been interested in puzzles. So much so that it sometimes drove a wedge between him and other people. He tends to get invested in the more elaborate ones to the point of obsession. And if you're not as quick to put something together as he is, he can be a bit condescending. Overall, I think he's got a good heart though, so I don't mind it occasionally. I was sitting in the school cafeteria Thursday afternoon when RJ plopped himself down next to me. He wore that same grin and it said, Ted had just posted a new logic puzzle. So what have you got for me today? I asked him. Well, your parents are still pretty chill, right? He asked back through a mouthful of pizza. I mean, yeah, I guess. It depends on what you mean. You think they would let us go out Saturday morning around 3 a.m.? I want to try something out. RJ had piqued my interest, and he was hamming it up now. He was trying to suppress a smile and act all mysterious, but it wasn't working. You gotta tell me what it is first. I said laughing to myself a little bit. I knew that he wasn't going to talk, though. He was relishing his little secret too much. He just shrugged his shoulders at me and turned his head back towards his pizza. I'll tell you more this weekend. Friday night came and I got a text from RJ around 10 o'clock. Don't fall asleep. I'll be there at 3am sharp. I knew why he was doing this. RJ didn't have a car and he relied on me to take him places pretty often. Where he wanted to go at 3am was beyond me though. He's not exactly the kind of guy to go and get drunk in the woods. By three o'clock, I was on my second cup of coffee and still fighting to stay awake. RJ showed up at the front door wide awake. Ready to go to McDonald's? He blurted out as soon as I opened the door. I mimed, slamming the door in his face, which didn't change his attitude in the slightest. Alright, I think you finally owe me an explanation. I said, shaking my head. Why are we going to McDonald's? RJ explained it to me as we got into the car. While he spends a lot of time on 4chan and I don't, apparently he came across this thread about weird receipts at McDonald's. There were a couple pictures included from people who had received these receipts. They all had a number written in red ink at the bottom of the paper. As an aside, I tried to find this thread that he was talking about while I went to post this, but I didn't have any luck. I hadn't ever used 4chan though, so if anybody can find the receipt pictures and link them in the comments, I would really appreciate it. RJ told me that some people noticed all of the receipts were processed at 3.33am on a Saturday. This little detail is what got them thinking that this wasn't a coincidence, but it might be some sort of big McDonald's secret challenge, kind of like Cicada 3301 or something. Now I actually thought this was pretty cool, I knew KFC did something like this with their Twitter account, they sent the guy who figured it out a picture of him getting a piggyback ride from Colonel Sanders. I thought maybe RJ and I could get one with Ronald McDonald if we figured this out. All of the receipts had another thing in common too. They had all ordered exactly five menu items. The red number at the bottom of the receipt was always a digit of zero through five. These menu items differed from receipt to receipt, but they were all numbered orders. For example, one was always the Big Mac. RJ explained that this led to them guessing that the numbered menu items formed some sort of code that needed to be input in the right order. And I think I know what the passcode is. RJ said in a dramatic whisper. Look at the receipt with a red 5 on the bottom, he continued. They ordered two number 1s, two number 4s, and a number 8. I think those are the digits of the passcode. 11448. They just need to be rearranged. And you figured out the right order? I asked excitedly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. I just hope no one else has beaten me to it. Well, what is it? You'll see soon enough, RJ replied. His sly grin had returned. I pulled into the McDonald's parking lot. It was almost completely empty, I could see a couple of employees and a lone customer inside. There was no one in the drive through line. Just pull up to the start of the drive through and sit there. Don't place an order yet. RJ instructed me. We have to place this order exactly at 333. I didn't like the idea of holding up the drive through line but like I said, there was no one else around. So I figured it wouldn't be too much of a problem. We sat in silence for the next couple of minutes. I kept my eye on my mirrors to see if anyone was trying to get into line. RJ kept his eye on his phone, watching every passing minute. At 3.32, he told me to drive up to the speaker. We sat there silently for what seemed like an eternity as the poor employee tried to get us to talk to her. As soon as a minute passed, RJ leaned over to my window and placed an order. I would like a number one. Um, I'll take another number one, please. A number four, a number eight, and another number four. We watched as each number popped up on a little screen next to the speaker. RJ seemed dissatisfied with the results. The employee told us to pull forward. So how did you know that was the order? I asked RJ. He wouldn't tell me, though. He just smiled and shrugged his shoulders once again. We got our order and we paid. The woman working the window didn't give us a little wink or a knowing nod or anything. In fact, she seemed incredibly bored. I handed the bag to RJ and he tore through it for the receipt. There, at the bottom instead of a red number, was a red address. Holy crap. I muttered under my breath. RJ waved the receipt excitedly at the employee. Is this it? Are we supposed to go here? He asked her. The woman seemed incredibly confused. She looked at the receipt and squinted her eyes. She told us that she had no idea what that address was or why it was even on our receipt. RJ and I exchanged incredulous glances. Were the employees not in on this? Who was monitoring it and writing in the red ink? Maybe they were just instructed to play Dom. We pulled out of the driveway and I had RJ put the address into his phone. It was only about a 15 minute drive from where we were. And sure enough, it was to another McDonald's. At this point, I was totally invested. RJ didn't even have to ask me. I was already driving towards the second location. Once we got on the road again, it was completely silent. There were no cars or people anywhere on the street. I suppose it wasn't too weird for such an odd hour, but still, something wasn't sitting right with me. RJ seemed to feel it too. The sense of calm. There was no sound other than the purr of the engine. No rustling tree leaves, no overhead planes, no crickets, nothing. I shrugged it off at the time as a side effect of being so tired, but not so sure now. When we finally made it to the second McDonald's, the parking lot was completely deserted. There were no cars, and not even for employees. All the lights inside the restaurants were on, but peering through the windows, it didn't seem like anyone was inside. That's weird, I said, as we walked up to the front door. There's no one here. I reached forward and pulled on the glass door, expecting it to be locked. Instead, it gave way immediately, letting off a cheery chime, that seemed, to linger in the air. Um, hello? I called out as we walked into the McDonald's. As I spoke, my breath appeared like a thick cloud in front of me. It was freezing inside. Each of our footsteps echoed off the tiled linoleum floor. Is anyone here? Silence. This is so weird, Arjo whispered. I'm going to check the kitchen. Maybe there's somebody back there. I wasn't so sure if that was a good idea, but he was already leaping over the counter. We should go, I said. I don't want to get into any trouble here. This feels weird. No, wait, hang on. He snapped back. What's that? RJ was behind the counter looking out towards the seating area. I turned around, following his gaze. There, alone on a table in the middle of the room, was a single Happy Meal box. We made our way over to the Happy Meal. On closer inspection, we could see a napkin sticking out from under the box. There were two words written in the same red ink. Choose one. I looked back at RJ and he was nodding at me furiously to open the box. And so I opened the cardboard and I reached inside. There were two small figures wrapped in plastic, Happy Meal toys, but as I looked at them more closely a feeling of dread began to settle in the pit of my stomach. The figure in my right hand was short and stocky, while the one on my left was taller and more slender. One wore a green hoodie and jeans, the other was in basketball shorts and a t-shirt. It was us. The figures were so detailed, down to our eye color and shoe brands. They were dressed exactly as we were at that moment. Tiny replicas of terrifying accuracy. RJ reached over and took his figure from my hand. What are... who could have... how is... RJ started asking through increasingly quick breaths. Examining his own likeness in the toy. Dude, we need to get out of here. I managed to whisper back to him. I didn't know what the heck was going on, but I was thoroughly creeped out by the whole thing. This didn't feel like a fun puzzle anymore. I turned and bolted back towards the door, still clutching my figure. RJ just stood at the table, staring at his miniature. Come on, man, I yelled back at him as I threw myself into the door. The door gave way and I was met with a blast of heat. The silence had seemed to crack as I crossed the threshold outside of the store. A train blared in the distance. A dog barked across the street. I could hear cars driving along the highway in the distance. A slight breeze scattered some leaves across the tarmac of the parking lot. It was as if the whole world collectively breathed out a sigh at once. I turned back to RJ. The store was completely dark. There were no lights on inside. RJ was gone. I was frozen in shock. I was standing inches from the door that I had just come out of. A door that now seemed to lead to an entirely different place. I finally came to my senses and pulled at the door again in a panic. Trying to get back inside. Maybe RJ had just moved somewhere else, I thought. Surely, he was right inside as somewhere. However, the door wouldn't budge this time. It was locked. I was completely beside myself at this point, calling out to him in a frenzy and banging on the glass door. After a few minutes of screaming, I had to stop and catch my breath. I sat down on the sidewalk in front of the door. I tried to stop myself from shaking and to calm myself enough to analyze what exactly had just happened and what I should do next. And that's when I looked back down at the toy in my hand. It wasn't me anymore. It was a small replica of Ronald McDonald, but his eyes were pitch black. There was a little speaker on his chest and a button on his back. I threw it onto the ground in sheer disbelief. As it at the sidewalk, the toy let out a grainy whisper. Good choice. Now start running. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.